listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, James. That's James Van Dyke. James uh, is himself a father of two of the cutest children you will ever encounter. That's Laurel and Vincent, and they're rock stars. And uh, so I want to add my greeting and say happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers, all those of you who have fathers. Happy Father's Day. And I want to welcome you as well. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we are delighted that you're here, whether you've been a member since, uh, well, the world was all in black and white, or this is your first time to visit. We are delighted that you're here. We are completely convinced, we are certain, that God has divinely directed your steps. He has purposed that you would be in this place this morning with these people to hear from his word, because God is in the business of revealing his truths to us to the extent that they then transform us. So I just want to set your expectations accordingly. This is God's desire, that we would come yielded to receive his word and that he, among his people, by his spirit, would change us. Now, I am betting that for just about all of us, this is probably not the very first time you've ever been to a church. Almost all of us, if not all of us, I'm betting have, have been to church before. And maybe you've had this experience where you've, you've gone to church, and who knows why, maybe because some overly aggressive deacon or greeter grabbed a hold of you and shook you and said, welcome and whatever, and you just kind of felt exposed a little bit. Or maybe, maybe there was a topic in the sermon or there was a, a thing that was said that sort of made you feel like, and you just sort of felt like there was all these bright lights on you and that everybody was looking at you. Well, get over it. Welcome to my world. I realize, oh, there's all these bright lights on me, and there's all these people looking at me, and, uh, and that's for good reason. Because I have been increasingly and incredibly convicted and candidly sort of scared to death uh, about preaching this morning. Because our message this morning is going to be all about self-control. <laughs> and I'm sort of the poster child for what not to do. And so I, I told my staff early this morning... I have, I don't think, ever prayed so hard for the rapture in all my life. <laughs> like, come on, Lord Jesus, I know you don't owe me nothing, but now would be a great time. Let's get this thing done. I know you say you don't know what it is, but you, come on, you know. Come on, just before Sunday morning, because I do not want to have to be the guy that preaches about self-control. That's a very, very bad idea. But here we are. I told Mike Hall, our associate pastor, I said, I think what I'm going to do is preach this sermon and then run out of the building so that when the lightning strike hits, uh, me, it won't affect all of you. That's, that's sort of how I've been feeling about all this because we are in a study through the book of Proverbs in the month of June in a pursuit of wisdom, a pursuit of wisdom, that we would be the kinds of people that would see the world through God's eyes that would begin to think God's thoughts after him, and then would be the kinds of people who adopt and appropriate his attitude such that our actions in this world would be as though God himself was indwelling billions of people as they inhabit the globe, because that is God's purpose and perfect plan. So we are in the pursuit of wisdom. It has to be pursued because it does not come to us naturally. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, the sage, the wise one, he's writing to his son. I know of no better text for Father's Day to cover than the book of Proverbs because it is a father instilling, infusing, and injecting wisdom into his son. This is what every father wants. In the book of Proverbs in chapter 7, Solomon the sage says, I looked out my window and there I saw walking on the street was a fool, and he was a youth. <laughs> well, duh. Because I've been that guy. Okay, yes, I am that guy. What does that tell us? It tells us that we don't come into this world wise. Nothing drifts to good. We have to acquire wisdom, and it is a supernatural divine deposit. 
We don't come into this world thinking God's thoughts after him. It has to be given to us. Now, the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It is a collection of principles, not promises. It is not trying to tell us how to make the right decisions. The book of Proverbs is trying to transform us into the kinds of people that make the right decisions. Does that make sense? All the difference in the world. We in Western civilization, particularly in 21st century America, we like techniques. We want a list of to-dos. If I just do these four or five or 12 steps, then I'll be fixed. That's not the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is trying to transform us into the kinds of people who will make the right decision organically and instinctively because the vast majority of life's circumstances are not explicitly covered in the pages of Scripture. So what do we do when we encounter this or that? If we are a people of wisdom, we will be equipped to respond to those things in a godly manner. So we are in a study called The Pursuit of Wisdom. So far, we have covered the wisdom of our words, that what we say, how we say them, why we say them, are an evidence of what we truly believe. And last week, we talked about the wisdom of work, not necessarily our employment or our paying jobs, but what do we do with our lives? That what we do is a demonstration of what we believe. Well, we're gonna continue on this morning and we're going to study the wisdom of self-control. So we're going to study a few passages in the book of Proverbs. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, verses 19 to 21. Now, I'm going to try to break this up somewhat structured. And the first thing we're going to do is talk about the problem of self-control. The problem of self-control. This is Solomon the sage writing to his son. Proverbs chapter 23, beginning in verse 19. The sage says, Hear, my son. <laughs> if you are a parent, you know what this verb means. This verb does not mean have some vibrations in your ear hole. doesn't mean that. It means hear to the extent that you actually understand and it changes your thinking so that it changes your doing. And then we usually follow that up with, now, did you hear me, boy? And there's usually some physical threat of violence associated with it. This is sort of what Solomon is saying is, hear, like really appropriate and take this into yourself. Hear this. Proverbs 23, verse 19. Hear, my son, and be wise. Change your thinking. Rethink your thinking such that your thinking will then be refunk. Change your mind about some things. Hear, O son, and be wise. And direct your heart in the way. I love this. In Scripture, both Old Testament and New, the heart doesn't mean what it means to us. Heart in Hebrew is lev. In Greek, it's cardia. Heart uh, does not mean what it means to our Western civilization in the 20th and 21st century. In our context, heart means uh, the seat of my emotions, my passions, my desires, and my wants. Not in Scripture. The heart in Scripture is your decision-making center. It is your, your, your will. It is your character. It is the thing that chooses. It is your chooser. Now, I love the fact that one of the first imperatives that the sage, Solomon, gives to his son is direct your chooser, direct your, your heart, not your emotions and your desires and your passions, but I want you to alter, to modify, to craft and to hone your chooser. So we want to be the kinds of people who make the right decisions, not just, hey, here is the right decision. He says, direct your heart in the way. What way? Well, in the way of the Lord. Verse 20, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. This is pretty straightforward. When we are under the influence of any substance, we cannot focus. We all have had the experience, I'm sure, at least a time or 12, where we push back from the table and we groan with the early onset feeling of the impending meat sweats. You've been there. <laughs> You've ever been to Stanley's? Yeah. Or 
what we like to call in our country Thanksgiving, where you take in 47 metric tons of turkey and carbohydrates, and then you push back and you go, oh, man, when the cowboys come, and you're gone. And you sort of lose focus, and you sort of lose your, um, well, your cat-like reflex is more like a sloth-like stupor, right? And so you're not clear-minded, you're not sober-minded, you, you've lost your focus, you're vulnerable, it's the same thing, it's pretty straightforward. When you have allowed yourself to consume too many spirits, then you are vulnerable, you've lost focus, you're not razor-sharp, you're, you're defenseless. Ephesians chapter 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be controlled or filled with the spirits. It's a play on words there. We lose our sober-mindedness. Now, here's a quick little lesson. What the Old Testament makes implicit, the New Testament makes explicit. Let me explain. Sometimes the Old Testament will give us some information, and it's sort of delicate and flowery and poetic, and it's, oh, that's, very, that's, that's lovely. And then the New Testament comes along, and it's like getting hit upside the head with a sock full of wood screws. You just, pow! It leaves nothing to the imagination. It gets your attention crystal clear. Case in point, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. It is near. It's right there. We are living in the final age before the ultimate age. We are citizens of the coming age, even though we live in this age. There's not going to be another that precedes the final. Therefore, there is some urgency. Ratchet up your awareness. We are at the end of all things. Do you, do you know that? We have a tendency to forget that. There is some urgency about our lives. Therefore, since we are living at the end of all things, we must be sober-minded and self-controlled. See, we say this all the time because our Bible says it all the time. And our Bibles read us every bit as much as we read them. Our thinking matters to God. The stuff that happens between our ears has spiritual weight and mass. God himself cares intensely and immensely about the ruminations of our minds. We are to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Why? For the sake of of our prayers. If we're not sober-minded and self-controlled, then our prayer life is affected. Our prayer life is afflicted. In fact, it's probably not happening at all. And so we find ourselves cut off from the source of life, from the source of wisdom, from the source of strength. And we're out behind enemy lines, as it were, with no air support whatsoever. And then we wonder why we feel so alone. Because we have allowed things to come in and cloud our judgment to, to remove our focus. And we are vulnerable when we've given ourselves to excess. But here's the deal. Solomon's not talking about a one-time lapse, an oops on the fourth Thursday in November. He's talking about a habitual practice, a pattern of relinquishment of sobriety of thought. Because he's talking about, look at this, those who are the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. And again, that Hebrew word is resh. It is not merely that you're short of cash. It is destitution. You're left with nothing, no capacity whatsoever to sustain your own life. Slumber will clothe them with rags. He's not talking about a one-time momentary lapse of reason. He's talking about a habitual pattern reality of life. You will find yourself in ruin, and it will probably catch you by surprise. Well, this is the problem of self-control. Solomon's going to continue. Let me ask you to turn a couple of pages to the right. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, verse 28. The sage writes, a man, and this is really a person, but in my experience, it's a man. You know this. It's me. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now it says, a man without self-control. Now, the literal better translation would be a man who cannot manage his spirit. It's the actual term there. A man who cannot manage his spirit. Now remember, the heart is the chooser. It's our decision-making core. But in Scripture, the spirit... 
that is the seat of our emotions, of our passions, of our desires, of our wants, of our urgencies. A man who cannot manage that, well, he's like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because all of our cities essentially are without walls. We like that. Give me wide open spaces. Don't fence me in. And when we travel and we find some cities in antiquity that still have remnants of walls, we think it's picturesque and precious. And so we take pictures of it, and it's really kind of, it's just delightful. But in antiquity, a city without a wall was an absolute disaster waiting to happen. It was a calamity. It was a catastrophe. A city without a wall was utterly defenseless. In fact, the book of Nehemiah gives us this great little story where Nehemiah is sitting in exile in Babylon. He is Jewish. He's an Israelite sitting in exile. And a messenger comes from Jerusalem to tell Nehemiah how things are going back home. What news do you have of Jerusalem, says Jeremiah. And the messenger says, it's bad. It's real bad. What news do you have of Jerusalem? He says, Nehemiah, the, the wall is gone. They've torn down the wall. And the text is very, very emphatic. And it says that Nehemiah weeps bitterly for three days. Why? Because the wall is down? What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. It is a guaranteed catastrophe and a calamity. There will be death and devastation. There will be scarcity of resources. It will be a horror. And Nehemiah weeps. A wall meant all sorts of things, on the other hand. If you have a wall, there's all kinds of things that a wall means to a city. But if you have a wall, you can have a market economy. I can make things, and I can bring them into the center, the, the agora, the market, and I can sell them and trade them with you, and you can make your things and bring them to me, and we can use our gifts, our skills, our talents, our passions, and we can build things, and we can trade them, and we can have civilization and society and culture and community. But when there's no wall, I can't do that, because if I leave my home, I'll get attacked by marauders and, and heathens and there's, there, there's no way for society and for a community to flourish, you see. And a man who cannot manage his spirit is like a city with no wall. He, he, he can't flourish. He can't thrive. Uh, oh, a city without a wall uh, provides no justice system. See, the wall was absolutely crucial because it provided security, but it also provided the seat of government. The king or the ruler and the elders and leaders, they would sit in the gate to the city, and that's where they would hear disputes and they would resolve conflicts. Otherwise, with no wall, what do you do? You go out into the open and you ball up your hand into a fist and you throw it violently at some other guy's face. And if you hit him enough times, you get what you want. Unless that guy has a bigger fist and is faster with it and you have a softer jaw, then he takes your stuff. And might makes right. But not if you have a wall, you see. A wall protects the people. A judicial system. A wall meant you could have community. We can have interaction. We can have fellowship. We can have relationships. We can actually live without the fear of you taking my stuff. I can actually begin to live as if, you know what, there are plenty of resources. I don't have to take yours in order to survive. This is all the things that a wall provided a city. And the sage says that a man who cannot manage his spirit is like a city who has no wall. But you know what? Here's the other reality. It doesn't take the entire wall being broken down, does it? All there has to be is a breach. Just one opening. And the robbers, the thieves, the marauders, the hordes of villains, they can come in. Your whole entire wall doesn't have to be broken down. There just needs to be a breach. And often is not. That comes in the form of no self-control. So here's our definition of self-control. We're talking about the problem of self-control. I've tried to improve upon this, and I simply can't. I'm borrowing this unashamedly from Tim Keller, who has written extensively on this topic of self-control. i written a lot of material on self-control, but this is his definition of self-control, and I think it's perfect. He says this, Self-control is the ability to recognize and choose, listen, it's both of those, being able to recognize, I see that and I understand it, I have heard, like Solomon says, to recognize and choose 
the important thing over the urgent thing at any given moment because within yourself, your desires are properly ordered. All of the things that come at me that are, that are urgent, and I want that, or I feel that, or I need that, self-control says, I recognize that there is something more important. I don't sacrifice the excellent for the good. I forego the good in view of and in lieu of the excellent. Then the more important things are wanted more and the less important things are wanted less. We say this all the time at this campus because earlier this spring, Dr. Paul Zoll stood on this very platform at our Mockingbird Conference, and he said, we become the kinds of people who what we ought to do and what we want to do become the same thing. There's no difference. What I ought to do, what I want to do are the exact same thing. This is what Tim Keller and Paul Zoll are talking about. We recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Now, this works itself out in all kinds of ways. In our physical appetites, specifically food. I, I, I'm here to be completely transparent and vulnerable and, and totally, completely candid. I have a weakness in my person. It comes in the shape of a fried triangular cornmeal chip made by the Frito-Lay company and in all sorts of flavors. Now they have like Parmesan paprika, they have sour cream and salsa pork rinds, they have all kinds of, and I see them and I think, I have to have that. And I'm a heart patient. This is unwise. There's an urgency. If I just have that bag of Doritos, and if I just cock my head back and just shower my face with Doritos, I'll be happy. And then I get that tightness of the chest, and I call my doctor, and I say, I don't know why it's happening again. As I'm licking the Cheetle off my fingertips, you see. There is an urgency, and yet self-control says, wait a minute, the more important thing is that I not clog my vascular system with cornmeal product, and that I actually am healthy so that I can serve my spouse, serve my children, serve my church, and serve my community. Oh, yeah, that's more important. And so I have self-control. I, I choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Well, what about the words that we say? Perhaps in an urgency, I feel the need to explain myself again. I'm not sure you understood. So let me tell it to you again, a little bit louder this time. Because it's so compulsory for me to, to be heard, to be vindicated, to be understood, to be justified. But all the while, I'm crushing the person that I'm saying this to. See, self-control is recognizing that the more important thing is that person's soul, not my being understood. That's self-control. How about this? In the area of sexual urges, I, I feel that I need that, I want that, I do that, because no one's going to tell me, no, come on, it's the 21st century, we've been liberated. And all the while, we're absolutely obliterating real relationships. There's an urgency of, of, of sexual desire, and yet, the more important thing is the spiritual awareness, the spiritual recognition of what a real relationship really is. Self-control says, I recognize that and I choose the important over the urgent. Well, substance abuse, drugs and alcohol, the more obvious things where, hey, I just have this urgency. I, I'm a little jittery. I just need to take the edge off. I just need a little shot of courage. I just need to have a little bit of relaxation. I just, need to, I just need to rest a little bit. And that urgent thing becomes the most important thing. What about things that are kind of strange? Maybe to some of you, for some of you, it's very real. Gambling. I'm the kind of person I deserve to beat and game the system because I deserve a shortcut. I'm not like all the average Joes out there who have to slog it out in the rat race. No, I deserve a quick and dirty shortcut. But that becomes a draw in urgency, and I forego the important thing. That's the problem of self-control. Let's transition to the practice of self-control. Flip a couple pages back to the left, Proverbs 18. We've talked about the problem of self-control, where we fail to choose the important Instead, we choose the urgent. Now, Proverbs 18, we're going to see the practice of self-control. Proverbs 18, I'll begin reading in verse 10. The sage says, The name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
It's very instructive. The righteous man runs into it. He does not happen by. He doesn't stroll past. He doesn't meander near. He runs to the name of the Lord. It is his strong tower. Verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Oh, this is so rich. This is all about the notion of security. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien was a brilliant writer, and he always said that his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, was not an allegory, but he was wrong. It absolutely, without question, is an allegory. And in particular, the second book in his trilogy, called The Two Towers, both in the book and in the movie, does a marvelous, wonderful job of demonstrating the importance of strength in a fortress, strength in a tower. If you've seen the movie or if you've read the book, you know that the entire theme, really, of the second installment is about people taking refuge in their perceived location of strength and safety and security. And King Theoden of Rohan says, we are under assault, my people. Rush, run to the hills, into the wall, into the keep, up the tower. It has never fallen, it will never fall. The makings of man, you see. And the entire movie, the entire book is based on what does it feel like when our greatest security crumbles around us. The horror, the despair, the hopelessness. But, the sage says, the name of the Lord is a strong heart. What's the point of Proverbs 18, 10, and 11? Is that everybody runs. Everybody has a high tower. Everybody runs to something for their ultimate security. Everybody does. I don't know what yours is, but everybody has one. He goes on in verse 11 to say, well, the person of means, the person of wealth, the person with stuff, they imagine, they assume, they believe that their treasure, their, their wealth, their possessions, that is their security, that is their strength, that is their safe place. This is why Jesus, here again, taking what the Old Testament makes implicit, Jesus in the New Testament makes it explicit. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because when that rich man is confronted with an assault of some sort, he has a tendency to run to the tower, which is in the exact opposite direction of where God is. Jesus makes it explicit. Everybody has a wall and a tower in their life. There's something that we all have a tendency to say, as long as I have that, I'll be okay. As long as that's not taken from me, I'll make it. Whether it's maybe I can lose my house, I can lose my job, I can lose, but if I lose that, I won't make it. That is your strong tower, and it is an imaginary strength. In fact, any and every other wall and tower other than the Lord God is merely imaginary strength. And that right there, this is so huge, that is precisely where addictions come into our lives. Whatever we run to for our relief or our security, that becomes an addiction. There's some obvious addictions, some obvious ones like drugs and alcohol. There's some, some seedy and unsightly addictions like pornography and sexual addictions. There's harmful addictions like overeating and gambling that hurts our finances. And then there are those socially acceptable addictions like shopping, career, money, maybe your spouse, your children, all of those things. Now, I have referenced what I'm about to say to some of you individually, um, and I want to be very careful and not let any of you think for a moment that I'm calling you out or singling you out. I am not. This is, this is a word to the entire congregation. So if you've heard me say this to some of you in our individual sessions, please do not for a moment think this is directed at you. The lights are up here. I'm the one standing up here. This is for me. But I reference this all the time, and I want to reference it again. A man named Neil Planinga has written a wonderful, brilliant article called The Tragedy of Addiction. And I highly, highly commend it to you, The Tragedy of Addiction. I'm going to sort of paraphrase it down. This is what he says. Neil Planinga says, No matter how addictions start, addictions operate like this. Addictions begin when we use something that we believe will relieve distress. It's just another pair of shoes. 
just a quick drink, just a quick look at the internet while my spouse is out of the house, just a, a quick pull of the slot, whatever it is, we use something that we believe will relieve distress. And then eventually, the addiction itself creates its own distress. And so finally, the addict spirals down when they try to cure the additional pain with the very thing that caused it. Now, prayerfully and in preparation, as I was planning for this morning, I know that that summary of addiction is speaking directly to some of you that I've never spoken with directly or individually before. I know that. That is, I believe, the Holy Spirit saying, this is the day of transformation. This is the day of change. This is the day of freedom and of release. We get stuck in these addictions because we need more and more of the substance to get less and less of that good thing, that feeling of relief. I need more and more and more of it, even though every time I consume it, it gives me less and less and less relief. And so I spiral down. I have to have more. I have to have more intense, and yet it gives me less and less relief. It's a downward spiral of addiction. And it's not limited to the obvious addictions condemned by society. It has to do with anything that we run to more than our Creator. Why do we as a species do this? Why, why does this happen to us? Because we were created for longing. And we have a tendency in our fallenness and in our pride to settle for anything other than God because we secretly believe that we can control it. Just a little bit doesn't hurt. I can control this. And then we end up being enslaved to it and by it. Well, oh my gosh, what do we, what do, we do? How can, how can we respond to this? Well, it's right there in the text in Proverbs 18. Run to the name of the Lord. He is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is not just flowery, poetic language in the ancient Hebrew. Remember, in antiquity, your name says something about you. It is what you are like. It is all of your attributes. Near the end of the book of Exodus, Moses has had this wonderful interchange, this dialogue with God, and he says, listen, you're, you're awesome, and you call me a friend, but here's, here's what I want. I, I just want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. It'll kill you. So here's what I'm going to do. Moses, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. And then I'm going to put my hand over the rock, and I'm going to pass by. And I'm going to go like this, and as soon as I pass by, whoop, I'm going to give you that right there. That's all you get. Otherwise, you'll die. And so he does. He puts Moses up in the cleft of the rock, puts him up there, puts his hand over the, the crevice, walks by and goes, whoop, and all Moses sees is the back of his robe. And Moses is almost vaporized. And as he is passing in front of Moses, you know what he's doing? He's saying his name. Moses is in the rock. I want to see your glory. God says, you can't. But I'll tell you who I am. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh. Slow to anger. Mighty. Sovereign. Good. Merciful. Gracious. Moses comes down, and he's glowing. That's the name of the Lord. So how do we run to the name of the Lord? How do we make that our tower? Well, hold on. We'll come back to that, Lord willing, here in just a moment. We've talked about self-control thus far. I want to talk now about the power of self-control. We'll circle back and get very practical, very tactical, and how we run to the name of the Lord as our strong tower. But right now, let me go ahead and give you the power of self-control. We've seen the problem. We've seen the practice. Here now is the power of self-control, and it's in the New Testament. Again, the New Testament makes explicit what the Old Testament makes implicit. It's in the book of Titus. I'll invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 in the New Testament, Paul writing to the churches on the island of Crete to encourage them, to remind them who they are and whose they are. Paul gives us this wonderful passage, Titus chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Oh, man. I wish that was a better translation. The grace of God has become physically, materially visible. He is here. He has come. It's Jesus. 
Did you know that's one of Jesus' titles? He is the very grace of God. He has manifested. He has come. He has become visible. The grace of God in person, human form. He has come. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing <laughs> zoeo. Not just the absence of death, not just not dying. He has brought life, real life, vibrant, HD, 3D, life life. This is why Jesus appeared. This is why he became visible. He has brought salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, this is convicting, as is all of the text this morning. You know what trains us for self-control? It's right there in the text. The grace of God made visible. He trains us for self-control. It is the grace of God that trains us for self-control. This is so very different than my normative parenting style. My normative parenting style is, you better get control of yourself or there will be physical violence. That's, that's really awesome on Father's Day to get to say that. What really trains us for godliness and to release ungodliness and to have self-control is the grace of God himself. Isn't that something? We are to live godly lives in the present age. We are citizens of the age as yet to come, but we live with a gold passport in the middle of blue passports. We live in this age, even though we are citizens of the coming age. This is how we are to live, with self-control, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the being made visible again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If anyone ever says, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was God, send him to Titus 2. Can't get clearer. We eagerly await his return. It is grace that gives us the power to have self-control. Yes, you know what's so great about this passage? As I have become emotional several times this week in studying this text, what this passage is saying is that there is even grace for a goofball like me who loses self-control all the time. There is no such thing as a lapse in self-control that is beyond the grace of our God. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what it is that you do. Your sin is no match for his grace. Your sin yields. It is lost. It is beaten. It was nailed to the cross of Christ, Colossians 2. So even for you and for me who have serially lost our self-control, it is not too late. We consider the grace of our God. So then, what are we to do? We've had the, the problem of self-control, the practice of self-control, and the power of self-control is the grace of Jesus himself. So what do we actually do? How do we literally, tactically, and practically run to the name of the Lord as our strong tower? I'm going to give you two very quick implications of how I think this ought to change all of us in this room. Number one, tell your mind the truth. Tell your mind the truth. This is constantly and consistently preaching a sermon to your own soul. In the midst of a, of a world and a culture and a context which is persistently bombarding us with all other messages that you're not enough, that you should experience this, that you deserve this, that you should have this. Remember what Solomon said, the sage to his son? Direct your heart, my son. And you preach a sermon to your own soul. The psalmist does this in Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Trust in God. Hope in God. That's Psalm 42. The psalmist is talking to his own soul, telling his mind the truth. This is what I know to be true. I'm hearing all of this other stuff out there tempting me to compare to everybody else around me that robs my joy. It gives me 
a fear and an uncertainty and a doubt which tears down my wall, which destroys the community in my family and in my church. But tell your mind the truth. There are so many other competitive messages that vie for our attention. We have to master the message that makes its way to our mind. We tell the truth. Oh, wait a minute. The grace of our God has appeared, and he has offered this gift to me freely. I am forgiven. Secondly, teach your soul to love. Tell your mind the truth and teach your soul to love. Do you realize that both of these require some intentionality? They do require some effort. These are not switches that we flick. These are not boxes that we check. These are, these are patterns of life. I tell my mind the truth, and I teach my soul to love. See, Jonathan Edwards was right. He said that you and I will always, every single time, choose what we desire most. We can't help it. Every single time, always. It's how we were designed. We will always choose what we want most. Now, we might make a hard choice, but down deep, it's because what we desire most is coming to the surface. Someone might stick a gun in your back and say, give me your wallet. And you go, well, I gave him my wallet, but I sure didn't want to. Oh, yes, you did. You wanted to live more than you wanted to keep your wallet. Well, I've made some hard self-sacrificing choices for my kids. Right, because what you wanted most was your kids flourishing. You will always choose according to what you desire most. Edwards was absolutely right. And because, however, of God's word and God's spirit, we have the opportunity to actually change what we love. And then we will change our entire attitude and our action. Friends, this is why we do what we do. Every Sunday morning when we gather together, we want to be very intentional about holding up Jesus, the name of Jesus, that he would be more beautiful, more believable, that we would turn our eyes upon him and go, oh, he is awesome. He is the creator God, and yet he suffered at the hands of those he created. That guy more beautiful, more believable, that our souls would be absolutely enraptured with his glory and his grace. That's why we do what we do. So there's the problem of self-control, the practice of self-control. We run to that strong tower. The power of self-control is that Jesus himself has come. Those are the implications. We tell our mind the truth. We teach our soul to love. Now here's the secret. Here's the secret. And it comes from a strange place. It comes from way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 29. In Genesis 29, we get the great story of Jacob. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, grasper, trickster. And yet, well, you know, Jacob falls in love. He sees a woman named Rachel. And oh, this Rachel makes his teeth sweat. You know what I'm talking about? He says, I've got to be with that woman at all costs. doesn't matter. She is worth it. And Laban says, well, here's the deal, Jake. You're going to have to work seven years to get her. Seven years. It's a long time. Jacob says, I'm in. But you know the story. Jacob gets duped after seven years, has a wedding party, has a little bit too much, is not sober-minded, is not self-controlled. And wakes up and, whoa, that's Leah. Yeah. Leah, who was described as weak in the eyes. That's that not good. Jacob's like, yeah, criminy, okay. Well, I still, I still want Rachel, because man, purr. Laban says, deal, you got to work another seven years. Jacob's like, seven years, I'm in. Here is the secret to self-control. Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Watch. And they seemed to him but a few days. Why? Because of the love he had for her. There it is. Seven years is a long time to work, but it seemed like it was just a few days because of how much he loved her. See, the thing we love most will always drive our decisions. And so I wonder, who do you love? What do you love most? What is your Rachel? It's a convicting question. 
If you know what your Rachel is, you will be equipped, you will be empowered, you will be unleashed to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. I know, I know. Life is hard. It's full of trial. It's full of suffering, full of temptation. It's just a few days. It's just a few days. Compared to the thing that you love the most. So Paul says our momentary struggles, they don't even, they don't even compare to the, the weight of the glory of the God-man that we will spend all eternity with. Let me help you out with one more thing. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, it says that we are to fix our eyes on this Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the instigator. He is the originator of our faith. What did this Jesus do? Who for the joy set before him endured suffering and shame on a cross, even death on a cross. You want to talk about self-control? Let's look at Jesus. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Praying, begging, pleading the Father? My God, if there is any other way, please, please take this cup from me. Sweating as though drops of blood, the text says. God gives no answer. So he's hauled away. His disciple buddies, the knuckle-draggers that they are, they're all asleep. The, the army comes to get him. They drag him away. They beat him. They punch him in the face. They mock him. They spit on the creator of life. They rip out his beard. They punch him in the mouth. He stays with it. It's self-control. <laughs> they humiliate him. They strip him. They take him to Calvary. They nail him to the cross of the curse. One spot stays with it. Two spikes. He stays with it. You remember what he said? I could call legions of angels. But he had self-control. Third spike and the crown of thorns. Why? For the joy set before him. What was that? Well, we have a tendency to say, well, of course, it was for the glory of the Father because God's awesome and he's shiny and he's really great and stuff. Yeah. But we cannot forget that Jesus, the God-man, experienced the presence and the glory of God the Father for all eternity past, and he would have it again. That was certain. What was the one thing that Jesus did not have? Us. Us. It's right there in Titus 2. The grace of God became visible. Why? To redeem for himself a people. It's us. Do you know what that means? You're his Rachel. You're already his Rachel. What he endured, what he stayed with, despite all the pain, all of the shame, why? Ah, it's a few days. Because you were worth it. question is, is he your Rachel? Let's pray. Oh, Father, that we would love you more. What more could you do that you have not already done? You have sent your son. You have sent your spirit. You've sent your people. You've given us your word. You love us. And on this Father's Day, I can't help but think that you in your goodness and sovereignty and glory and might saw your only son hanging in shame and misery and humiliation and pain and suffering on a cross. And for our sakes, you didn't call it off because you are a good father. And it was not child abuse. It was love and redemption and reconciliation and restoration because we are your Rachel. For whatever reason, you find us lovely. For whatever reason, you, we, make, we make you happy. And so, Father, we confess that we have frequently rebelled and chosen to not remember that. But thank you for this text that gives us the opportunity to drive and direct our heart that you, Lord Jesus, would be our Rachel. You would be our greatest first love. 
Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to slug it out, who is in the tower building business, I don't know how else to say this, Father, but would you tear that tower down? And would you give them, by grace, the desire to run into the name of the Lord? Would you lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Would you help them to believe, perhaps even against their own intellectual faculties, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he paid the wages of sin, death, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, perfection. He offers that completed scorecard to us freely by grace. Ah, and now we are unleashed to have godly lives of self-control. For the rest of us, Father, who have been believers for a very long time, but we have fallen ourselves into a rut because nothing drifts to good and we have constructed all these other little towers and we have descended into addictions. I pray, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus that you would shatter those shackles that bind us, whatever the spiral of shame that we have descended into, that you would free us from it. And instead, we would only run into the name of the Lord as our strong tower behind the wall of the great and coming city. And Father, for those who love you dearest, who love you most deeply, who are engaged in suffering and trial and tribulation and testing and even torment, would you increase their love for you as well? These afflictions would seem but just a few days because of how much we love you. Oh, Father, help us to love you more. <laughs> You're worth that. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.